title of our message today is Radical Inclusion, um, and uh, we're going to see how uh, Jesus accomplishes that and his heart uh, really for all of the lost. If, if you're paying attention today and watching the news, you understand that racial tension in the U.S. is on the rise, that terms like social justice, uh, critical race theory, uh, white privilege, in the news daily, cancel culture, people are being canceled for racially insensitive remarks and other things. And, and you know, this is just, it's, it's just blasted at us. It's, it's controversial. It's, I mean, just last night, uh, I read in the newspaper that the, the, uh, the, the ICE uh, detention center in Portland was set on fire. People are upset about all of these things. And, you know, there's a lot to be said, highly controversial, highly complicated. Um, You know, I'll just say critical race theory uh, is critically flawed. Um, And, uh, you know, this issue of white privilege, just saying it sets people off and makes them angry. But racial division is a very real thing. And it's a very real problem. Uh, And sadly, it's nothing new. It's not like, you know, the United States has just recently, you know, experienced these difficulties. Uh, These are worldwide difficulties. And they they don't just go back, you know, 10, 20, 50 years. They actually uh, go back all the way. They trace it um, to uh, the Tower of Babel, really. When you think about it, this is when mankind was separated and scattered linguistically and geographically and, um, you know, the, the development of diverse cultures and tribes and ethnicities. And as these different diverse cultures became uh, separated and, and then embraced different, you know, varying worldviews, different religions, it, it further inc- increased and perpetuated this separation and this division of the, between the world's people. And then you add into all of that the fact that we are sinners, um, that because we are sinners by nature and by choice, it sets the, sa- the stage for radical division on a cosmic scale. And we looked at this last week. We looked at Romans 5.12. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. And, you know, the results of death are all around us. This, this, this infectious, sinful plight that, that brings death to our marriages and to our relationships, to our families, ultimately to entire communities, uh, is, is just this pernicious work of sin. Why? Because we are separated from God. And because mankind's relationship is separated from God and damaged, what happens is that it then poisons all of our other relationships, James talks about this in his gospel, or in his uh, epistle. He says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that are at war within you? And so what did God do? Well, God made a way that we can be made right with him and reconciled to him. Now, the first thing that God did, and this is a, a massive oversimplification, so, so give me some grace here. But the first thing he did was that he chose for himself a people through whom he would reveal himself to the world. And this was the nation of Israel. 
And God, speaking through the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, he said this to Israel. He said, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so God gave to this nation uh, his laws and his commands to follow. Um, and the, the, the laws and the commands that God gave, ultimately, they were to point us to Jesus. We talked about this in last week's message. Uh, Galatians 3.24 says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The idea is that God says, here's my standard and here's the way that I, I want everyone to live and to behave. And what happens is we try and keep that and realize very quickly, I can't keep that. And, and God's like, yes, I gave this to you so that it would reveal the fact that you are sinners and have you turn and look to the person of Jesus Christ who alone can cleanse you of sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you can become pure and holy in him, not in yourself, not in your works, but in the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so this was the whole intent that God would reveal himself to the nations through the nation of Israel, but they missed the memo. Uh, they began relating to God and to his promises based on a system of do's and don'ts. We're going to try and keep that law. And they related to God on a system of privilege, um, essentially saying, we're sons of Abraham. And we have the law given to us from God. Um, and so we have a privileged relationship with God. And so rather than embracing the duty that God had given to them, that they were to know the Lord and shine as beacons of light to all the nations uh, and point people to God, no, what they began to do was that they proudly condemned and they excluded Anybody who wasn't Jewish, who wasn't a part of the Jewish religion, and so they, they, just, they just prejudiced against them uh, with an extreme hatred, an extreme prejudice. As a matter of fact, some of the rabbis of this time taught that Gentiles, which is a junk drawer term for anybody who's not a Jew, um, any Gentile these rabbis taught, that they were created only as kindling for hell. They're firewood for hell. They exist just to make hell burn hotter. That's what these guys taught. Now, obviously, that teaching's not from God. God has a heart for the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So this is the heart of God. Um, Isaiah uh, chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. This is God uh, speaking uh, to, the, to, to the nation of Israel. He said, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison. You recall, I, I, I pointed out Paul's words to Timothy last week, saying that, listen, you need to gently instruct people because essentially what he says is they've been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And that's the way Satan operates, that he offers this counterfeit and we see it as freedom and we don't realize that it's, it's enslaving us to sin. And so uh, God, again, speaking through, through Isaiah, says, 
open blind eyes, bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This is God's, uh, this is God's heart. Now, this verse was given to the Jewish people, but it focuses on a very specific Jew from the tribe of Judah. It's focusing on Jesus Christ. And with this in mind, we come now uh, to our text. John chapter 12, we pick it up in verse 20. And understand, by the way, as we pick up the text, we, we just left Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Verse 20 picks it up um, a, a couple of days later after, after this. And so it says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Right? This is talking about the Feast of Passover. And, and, and then they came to Philip, um, who uh, was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. Every time you see Andrew in the scriptures, he's always bringing somebody new to Christ, right? And so Philip goes to Andrew. He's like, hey, these, these guys want to see Jesus. And so they together, uh, they, they, uh, they, they told Jesus. Verse 22 concludes. Now again, two days have passed. Jesus is no longer on the road to Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. This is two days later. He's now teaching in the temple precincts. And here now, these certain Gentiles, these Greeks, they want to see Jesus. Um, We're told that they had come to worship the Lord uh, at the feast, at the feast of Passover. And the idea is that these are not Jewish converts. These are simply God-fearing people who want to come and to worship God. That's, that's their desire. But when they come to the temple to do that, they are met with segregation and they are met with barriers. Understand, the entire temple compound was considered holy and it became increasingly more holy as one entered farther in from east to west. So in 20 BC, uh, King Herod enclosed the outer temple with, uh, with a court, with uh, colonnades. And uh, he called the area the court of the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were allowed to go to that outer court, but they were excluded from the inner courts, right? And the Jews put up signs, and the signs were written in both Greek and Latin, and these signs basically said to these Gentiles who who come, and okay, you can go to the outer courts, but they basically said, if you go any farther, if you try and come in, we're going to kill you. That's what these signs were posted and said. So, welcome to church. You can sit outside in the back. We, we, got, we got special drinking fountains for you, you know, and uh, you, 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 can, you can be there. Uh, you know, you can use your own bathrooms. You're not going to use ours. Uh, you can sit in the back of the bus. This was their experience when they came to church. But the Jews then did something else. They set up money changer tables in the courts of the Gentiles. These money changer tables, basically the religious leaders had said this. They said, look, if you're going to come to church, you're going to worship God. If you're going to make any offerings to God, like if you're going to bring your sacrificial offerings, well, then we got to inspect it. And so you'd bring, you know, your lamb or whatever, and then they'd inspect your lamb. And inevitably, man, don't you know, they'd find a blemish with the lamb that you wanted to bring. And they would say, you can't offer that. 
but you know, we've got one available for you that you, that you can purchase. We'll take, we'll take yours as a trade-in. You know, it's kind of like the car dealership. You go there and they give you pennies for your car you're trading in. And then, you know, sooner if you left, they've got it detailed and out there for, for jacked up way higher than you ever sold it for. And, and I, I speculate that's probably what they did. It's like, oh, that, that, this lamb ain't no good, you know. And then when that guy's out of sight, they bring it back out and sell it to the next guy, you know, for an increased price as well. Well, all the while taking his thing. And then as well, if you wanted to offer, you know, your, your, your giving to the Lord, you wanted to offer tithes to the Lord, they'd say, they said, well, look, you can't, you can't use your, your, your pagan uh, uh, coinage to do that. We're not going to accept that. You have to use a specially minted temple coin. And so, you know, it's like the airport. You're going to, to Europe and you got to get, you know, you exchange your, your cash and get euros. You know, they've got an exchange rate. And once again, they jack up the rate. And, uh, and so they're making merchandise of people. And they set all of this shenanigans up in the court of the Gentiles. So it's bad enough, hey, welcome to church. You go sit outside in the back and you can't come in here with the rest of us. But then you're like trying to worship God in the middle of a swap meet. And, and so not only are they segregating the Gentiles, but they're scamming them as well. And if you're with us, when we went through Holy Week, we, we saw an event that happened during this time. The whole last half of John's gospel focuses on just the final week of Jesus' ministry here on earth, this, this uh, process leading up to him going to the cross. And one of the things that Jesus did was he cleared out the court of the Gentiles. He cleared out the, the money changers from the court of the Gentiles more specifically. The text reads this way. Mark chapter 11 records the event. It says, so they came to Jerusalem and then Jesus went into the temple and he was outraged and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all nations, but you have made it a den of, of thieves. And understand, this event happened the day before our text today. It happened the day before, and, and, and that's no coincidence. These guys now, these Greeks, these Gentiles, they're, they're aware of all of this. And so they come to, to uh, Philip, and they're like, we want to see Jesus. Why? Because they understand that Jesus actually cares about them. Because he's like, hey, look, this is no way to, to invite all the nations to come to know me. I like what F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says in his commentary. <clears throat> he says, these Greeks recognized Jesus' cleansing of the temple as having been undertaken in the interest of Gentiles, like themselves, who when they came up to worship the true God, had to continue themselves or to confine themselves in the outer court. See, they understood that Jesus was taking up their cause. They understand that Jesus is opening the way for them to come to the Lord. I love this comment by Harry, Henry Alford. He makes this observation. He says, these, <clears throat> these men from the West at the end of Jesus' life set forth in the same as the wise men from the East at its beginning. The, mad, the Magi came to his cradle. They came to his cross. And so they seek out Philip from Bethsaida in Galilee. And that's important. Why did they seek out F Philip? 
Well, understand Bethsaida in Galilee was Philip's hometown, but the text doesn't tell us that that's his hometown for, for just any reason. That was a place where there were many uh, Greek Gentiles who lived. And Philip as well is a Greek name. And so what they're doing is they're seeking out the guy who's from their town. Now, that's significant for us. I hit the pause button right here. Here's a point of application for us right in the beginning. Here you have people who are separated from God. They need to know Jesus Christ. They want to know Jesus Christ. And who are they seeking him through? They're seeking him through somebody who's from their town. Last week, we saw 30 people, more than 30 people, make professions of faith in Jesus Christ in our services. It was an amazing thing. And one of the stories that came out, and there are, there, there's, there, we should just dedicate a Sunday to testimonies. I'm telling you, so many awesome things are happening. One of the stories that came out of this, there was a, there was a father who, who committed his life to the Lord and got saved. And his son has been praying for him for years and years and years. It was, it was an astonishing thing. The, 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 the daughter, you know, his wife was telling me that, that you, know, uh, you know, she went in, into the bathroom and the, the man's daughter was in there and she was weeping. And she's like, what's going on? She's like, Papa got saved today. And it was just this incredible thing. And he's in tears just telling the story. But it, the news that comes out afterward was not only has, you know, his, his son and his family been lovingly ministering to him, trying to share Jesus with him, but he shared the story. There was a guy at his work that, that has been inviting him to church and just, just letting his light so shine before men. They see his good work and glorify his father in heaven. You see, we talk about the Jews are supposed to be to a light, light to the nations. We're to be a light to the people all around us. That's what Jesus said. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. And this, this man, because of his family shining their light and because of this man, this co-worker shining his light, he has now come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He has a future and a hope and he's been delivered. And so the, the, the point of application for us in this, rather than just going, oh, they come to Philip, okay, that'd be interesting. No, that's a huge deal because people, they'll come to you too. They'll come to you too, and we need to be alert and open and ready for those people that say, you know, uh, what do you, I want what you've got. You know, I mean, that, what a great thing if somebody comes to you and just goes, man, you just went through this, and how can you be so at peace? It's a, it's a door of invitation. It's a door of opportunity, and here's why. Because it's your circle of influence. I'm astounded at people who come to know the Lord and over and over again we hear the story. These are people I would never meet. These are people my pastors would never meet. And yet we get the opportunity to meet and to share with them. Uh, Paul, you know, he said, one plants, another waters, but God brings the increase. And, and some of y'all, you're, you're planters of seeds. Some of y'all, you're waters of seeds, you know, waterers of seed. Um, but this is, this is the idea is that we do this. And so they come to Philip. Philip, or come, yeah, they come to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. And, uh, and, they, and they bring the people to Jesus. Verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, 
The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. Now, Jesus here is beginning to reveal three key truths for everyone who's seeking Jesus. When we first read it, it's, it kind of sounds, because it starts in the New King James, the sentence starts with but, a contrary, contrasting word, and so it kind of sounds like, hey, they want to see you, and Jesus is like, you know, got different ideas. No, that's not what's happening here. Jesus here is laying out the purpose of his mission. He's going to talk about the path of his followers, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and finally, he's going to talk about the punishment of sin and rebellion. And so we start here with the purpose of Jesus's mission. And understand that the overarching theme of Jesus's reply, it's summed up in this word glorified. We see it here in verse uh, 23, and then when we get down to verse 28, um, Jesus, well, let's just read verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled. Uh, and, and he says, and, and, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? This here, this is Jesus' humanity coming out. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. And the whole idea for his coming was to give his life as a ransom for many. But you need to understand, we, 2,000 years later, when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it's kind of like, yeah, Jesus came and he died on a cross, and that's what he came to do. We need to understand the horror of the cross. The Romans designed crucifixion to be actual, a- absolutely the most wicked, torturous device ever known to mankind. They were like, we're going to kill you, and we're going to kill you as slowly and as agonizingly as possible. And, and Rome, basically, here's how they operated. They would overtake an area, overtake a country, occupy it, and then they had what was known as the, the, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And basically, it was this. Hey, look, there's a new sheriff in town, and if you're cool, we'll be cool, all right? But if you mess with us then we're going to crucify you. And these crucifixions, they were very public. They were very brutal. Um, I could go into graphic detail, but they were basically designed to kill you over several days. It was so bad that sometimes it took people three days, four days to die hanging on the cross. And, they're, and they're, you know, they're, they're slowly suffocating because the, their weight pulls them down. And they've got these nails through, you know, their, 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 their hands and their feet. And, and it's really, you know, through the ulnar nerve. If you ever hit your elbow and you get that fire that's coming up, every time a person would have to pull on those nails to take a breath, it was just a new experience in pain. And, I mean, that gives real incredible meaning when you think about Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He had to pull against those nails to take the breath to be able to expel that breath across his vocal cords to pray that prayer for you and me. But the Romans, they would crucify people very publicly, and some days, because it took days for a person to die, wild animals would start eating on the person as they were dying. Um, They're like, well, there's a meal for me, you know. It was just wicked and horrible. 
So Jesus, he knows what the crucifixion is. And so he says, rightly, my soul is troubled. Your soul would be troubled if you were, knew that that was in your future. But he says, metaphoric, or, uh, you know, just kind of, um, uh, uh, I can't remember the word. Anyway, <laughs> Smilesheimer's kicking in. Um, he, he says, Father, save me from this hour. He, he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He doesn't mean this. He's like, am I going to say this? No, I'm not going to say this. He says, uh, uh, but for this purchase, I came to this hour. That's the whole reason I'm here. And so he says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so there in verse 28, this, this, this word glory, this is, this is the whole of what Jesus came to do. He's, he's, he's like, I'm come to glorify the Father. It means literally to praise, to extol, to magnify, to celebrate, to honor, to make glorious, to adorn with luster, to clothe with splendor. And what it speaks of is ascribing the highest glory to God as possible. Second point of application for us here, Jesus is saying, the highest glory that I can ascribe to God as possible is to fulfill my mission. And my mission is to go to the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all mankind. You have a mission as well. If you are a follower of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've come to know him, if you're a child of God, God's created you with a mission and with a purpose. And, and the hour, the, or the idea is to bring as much glory and honor to God as possible with the lives that he's given to us. Yes, he saved you, and yes, he blesses us, and yes, we get to enjoy those blessings, and, and, and all of that is well and good, but at the same time, we, we need to live those examined lives that are asking prayerfully, God, how can I bring you glory and honor in how I live uh, my life? And Jesus says, it's in this hour that he's going to accomplish that. You know, as we've gone through John's gospel, we've seen on six separate occasions up until this point um, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. You know, famously, his mom goes to him at the wedding feast in Cana, first miracle ever re recorded Jesus performing. And she's like, oh, we're out of wine? No problem. Let's bring my son. It's time for you to shine, Jesus. Everybody needs to see who you are. And he's like, my hour has not yet come, right? But here now, he says that his hour has come. Now, understand, this is not a literal hour. It's a figurative hour. It's the hour of atonement. And, and the phrase, uh, my hour has come, it's written in verb form, and it's written in the perfect tense. And here's the significance of that. Literally, it means that the hour has come and that it stays with us that it stays with us. And here's the significance. It's the hour that Jesus is going to face the death on the cross and to atone for the sins of all mankind. And it stays with us because what Jesus did for you and for me, it applies yesterday, it applies today, it applies tomorrow, next week, next year. It's, a, it's an ongoing redemptive work. 
And, and your redemption brings glory and honor to God. And how we live out our faith also brings glory and honor to God. And so the hour has come and it stays with us. That's the idea. Understand as well, Jesus, when these guys come to him, we want to see Jesus and he's talking now about uh, how, you know, the hour has come unless a, a grain of wheat dies and falls into the ground, it remains alone. But, but if it dies and is buried, it produces, you know, a great harvest. Um, and he goes on to say, um, in, as, as we continue, he says, uh, that when the people who stood by and heard, or, so the voice comes from heaven, you have glorified it, you will glorify my name again. And the people, verse 28, who stood by and they heard it, they said that it had thundered and others said an angel has spoken to him. They hear this incredible voice. And Jesus answers, he says to them, this voice didn't come um, because of me, it came for you. Basically, look, this is authenticating what's going to go down. This is authenticating what's going to happen because when Jesus is crucified, everybody's going to see it as a massive failure. Oh, oh, this was the guy, you know, that, that, that we were, you know, going to be hoping in, right? And, and Jesus says, no, it was said for, for your sake. And Jesus said, uh, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, verse 32, if I am lifted up, from the earth, I'm going to draw all peoples to myself. What might come to your mind is a story. I think it's in Numbers 21. Um, and this is a, an, an instance where the Israelites were in the middle of the Exodus. And uh, they were being bitten by serpents, fiery serpents. And they were causing incredible, painful bites. And, they, and some of them were dying from these serpents. And they cried out to Moses and said, you know, it, you know go, ask God to deliver us. And God speaks to Moses and he says, here's how you, here's how you set this straight. Um, I want you to, to take uh, and fashion an image of a serpent out of bronze I want you then to affix it to a pole and I want you to hold it up and instruct the people if they're bitten to look to the serpent uh, and, uh, on this pole and, uh, and they'll be saved and delivered. And you go, man, that's just a crazy thing. What is up with that? Well, it's highly symbolic. The serpent is an image of sin. Bronze is an image of, of judgment and being hung up on the pole is this picture pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so this is the idea that, that uh, Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look, the, this, this is, this is God-ordained. This is important. And Jesus is emphasizing this because the hour is going to be brutal and people are going to doubt. They're going to think, well, this is the end. I'm reminded of a story that's told in Luke's gospel. Um, Jesus, the morning of his resurrection... He's been resurrected, not, you know, the news isn't widely known at this point, and Jesus is walking down this road, and he encounters these two guys, and so he, you know, he cruises up to them, and he engages them in conversation. They don't realize it's Jesus risen from the dead, and so Jesus asks these guys, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stop short, sadness written all across their faces, and then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. He's like, what are you, new? You haven't heard all this stuff? Are you crazy? And Jesus plays dumb. He's like, what things? 
And the things they said that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. They said he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and of all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped. You see the loss of hope here? We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. And this all happened, they told him, three days ago. And the story goes on and Jesus, uh, you know, ends up disappearing from them just as miraculously as he appeared with them. And all of a sudden they realized that was Jesus. Oh my gosh, that was Jesus. And so, so the people are going to see the crucifixion. Jesus knows they're going to be freaked out about it. They're going to lose heart. They're going to lose hope. And so to these Greeks, what he says ahead of time in verse 32 is, look, if I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I'm going to draw all people to myself. All peoples. That phrase, all peoples, literally it means every type. It means every kind. It means nobody is isolated from Jesus. It, doesn't mean, it means nobody's segregated from Jesus. It doesn't matter Jew, Gentile, Democrat, Republican, Raiders fans. It doesn't matter that there's no one separated from Jesus Christ. And understand the significance of verse 32. What was the question that we started with? What did they say? We want to see Jesus. And Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, from the earth, I'll draw all peoples, everyone, those Gentiles asking to see me, I'll draw them too, to see me. To, to, to see me. They want to see me, this is where they need to look. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to make a way for you to become children of God. You're not going to be segregated to the outer courts. You're not going to be, you're not going to be marginalized and, and, and you're not going to be victimized. You're going to, you're going to be my children. And, and if you want to see me, you need to look to the cross. Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, the second truth that Jesus reveals for everyone who's seeking Jesus is he, he talks about the path of being Jesus' followers. Notice again, verse 24 and 20, uh, through 26, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. What Jesus does here is he uses an example of farming, um, which would be very familiar to this agrarian society. They, they farm all the time. And he's explaining not only what he came to do, but what following him looks like. And, and basically, it's a path of dying to self, and it's a path of dying to sin in order to yield a harvest. And that's the idea. You bury a seed, you know, and, and there it's in the ground. It doesn't, the seed doesn't remain in the ground. What happens, I mean, it does, but, but it doesn't remain unproductive. It then breaks open, and the, the, the crop grows, and the fruit is there to, to, to feed other people. 
I told you last week that we baptized over, or that we, um, that we uh, saw over 30 professions of faith in Jesus at the invitation. We then baptized over 50 people last week. And this is a picture of, of our death and our burial and our resurrection with Jesus. This is, this is the whole act, the whole process that, that we identify with the Lord's work. You know, we go, we go under the water, it's a symbol of death and burial, and we come up out of the water, it's a symbol of living and newness of life. And this is, we do this because Jesus commanded it. It all points back to the work that he did on the cross. And it's a, matter, it's a way of saying, Lord, I want to follow you. And understand, when Jesus says his followers are to hate their lives, he's not saying that in the sense that we disregard our lives altogether. What he's saying is that, that you, you hate it in the sense that, that you give up everything for the sake of, of knowing and following Christ. We freely give it up for God. Why? Because God has something far better. I mean, think about your own testimony, you know, what, how you were before Christ and, and how, what God has done after Christ. Chuck Smith told a story one time, Pastor Chuck Smith, he had a, an, an unbelieving neighbor and this guy, you know, just had a lot of issues going on. He'd been witnessing to him for a long time and invited him over to the house. They were having a meal and, and he's trying to, to share the gospel with him and this guy's being all resistant and he, and he says to him, um, look, okay, if you're right and I'm wrong, what have I lost by following Jesus, right? Following Jesus has brought me joy. It's brought me peace. He's given me a future. He's given me a hope. Do you have any of that? And then he says, and, you know, what is it? What have I lost by coming to Christ that you think is so worthy? And then he says to him, but what if I'm right and you're wrong? What are you gaining by, by holding on to your life? And what are you going to be losing by, by surrendering your life to Jesus? And, and Chuck Smith telling the story, the guy looked at him and his answer was, not a damn thing. <laughs> and he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ because he couldn't argue. He's like, you know, just living in Jesus is just such a beautiful thing. And and so it is so important that, that we understand that the difference between where we are and where God wants us to be is the painful experience that we refuse to endure. That, that, that if you lose your life for his sake, you find it. Well, the third key truth that Jesus reveals for everyone who's seeking after Jesus is that there's the punishment of sin and rebellion that, that, that awaits those who reject him. Notice again, verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world, now is the ruler of this, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, right? And when Jesus speaks of this world, what he's talking about is the world culture that opposes him. He's talking about the culture that outlaws prayer in school. He's talking about the culture that, that legislates radical immorality. He's talking about a culture that funds and, and, and fights for killing innocent babies in the womb. He, he's talking about this culture that, that shouts freedom but all the while is enslaved. You know, sin is pleasurable for a season but the season's always too short. And the Bible says this in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this to judgment. Nobody thinks about that. And Jesus is saying, look, sin's about to be judged. Not only is it going to be judged here on the cross, 
But there is an ultimate judgment for everyone. And you're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. And understand this culture has a leader. His name is Satan. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. And the cross judges both the world and its leader. And so verses 34 through 36, the people answered him, we have heard from the law and the, that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Right? <coughs> They've heard all the scriptures that talk about the Messiah is going to live forever. And certainly we know Jesus does live forever. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, right now, this very moment, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God and he's praying for you and he's praying for me by name. But they totally missed it, don't understand that the path of Jesus, even his own, own disciples haven't, can't, can't do the math and figure it out, but that the path of Jesus involves a cross, it involves dying for sin, and that he would be crucified and buried, and, and yet he's going to be resurrected, and he will ever live to make intercession for you and me, and he has conquered Satan, sin, and death. They don't get any of that. They don't understand that, Right? And what Jesus is, goes on to say here, he, he's like, uh, uh, Jesus says, um, how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Verse 35, Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and he was hidden from them. Give to me your attention very quickly as I draw this to a close. Jesus is saying, look, judgment is coming and time is short. And everybody always thinks they got more time. And yet the Bible says, what is your life? You're a vapor that's here for a little while and then you're gone. Jesus is saying, look, you better make hay while the sun shines. Literally, right? Seed goes into the ground, produces wheat, right? You know, there's the, the, you gotta, you have to understand the invitation is very short. But tragically, I want you to look at verse 37 as I draw this to a close. It says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. We have a choice. We can harden our hearts or we can believe that Jesus is who he said he is and we can, we can choose to follow after, to obey, and to believe him by faith. I close with three questions. They'll be up afterwards too if you, if you can't write that fast. Um, after the service, we'll put them back up. Am I alert to the people in my circles of influence who might be looking to see Jesus? Take a walk with that question. Question number two, what are some specific ways that I can bring glory to God this week? And third question, is there anything that I've been holding on to that I need to die to?